Hello, and welcome to Resolutions, a podcast produced by the ABA section on dispute resolution, where we talk with members of the dispute resolution community about topics of interest in the field. I'm one of your hosts, Adam Martin, and today I'll be talking with Professor Victoria Sahani, a professor of law at Arizona State University, Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law in Phoenix, Arizona. She focuses on international commercial arbitration, investment treaty arbitration, and alternative dispute resolution, and often writes on topics involving litigation and arbitration funding, including the second edition of her co-authored book, Third-Party Funding and International Arbitration, with Lisa Bench Neuveld. On March 10th, 2020, Professor Sahani will be presenting at the 2020 Dispute Resolution Section Arbitration Training Institute on third-party funding, what do arbitrators need to know? Uh, good afternoon, Professor Sahani, and thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Uh, thank you so much for that uh, kind introduction, Adam. Um, it's my pleasure to speak with you today. Cool. Um, before we get started and talking more about your presentation and third-party funding, um, I was hoping to talk a little bit about your background and how you got um, involved in academia and how you became to and how you came to specialize in ADR. Um, so first, sure. begin your career in uh, the legal field. Yes, sure. So um, when I was an undergraduate student um, at Harvard, I was interested in dispute resolution um, in the, at the international level. Um, I saw lots of issues involving disputes between states as well as disputes between um, groups of people within states. So for example, when I was in um, college, the situation in Darfur was a big issue in the news back then. Um, and I thought to myself, oh, there must be a way to resolve these disputes and I'd like to help. Um, and then I thought, well, but I'm just an undergrad. Um, nobody will probably listen to me unless I go to law school and get a law degree. Um, so, um, decided to go to law school, was fortunate enough to be admitted to Harvard Law School, um, and while I was there, I took a variety of courses involving negotiation and dispute resolution uh, with Frank Sander, uh, Bob Bourdon, and others from the program on negotiation there, um, and was very interested in it as a field. Um, the interesting thing is my, um, my current specialization is in international arbitration. Um, and at that time, Harvard was not offering international arbitration as a course. I discovered that topic later in my career, um, but now they do, and they have an international arbitration society and everything else. So, um, but that's how I began my career. I decided to go to law school to get involved in essentially um, resolving disputes between countries. Um, and my interest in ADR stemmed from that. Um. So much like um, international arbitration, I think third party funding also kind of took off in Europe uh, a few decades ago um, and is just now in the last few years starting to really um, hit its stride in the United States. Um, so talking about third party funding, I'd like to start out with some basics about the, the issues. Um, so can you give us kind of a brief overview of what we talk about when we say third party funding and how that's maybe different than um, other types of litigation funding like, um, like insurance or something like that? Sure, absolutely. Um, so the first thing that 
would be important to know about third-party funders is that they are um, typically independent companies that are not providing legal services to their clients. Um, many will have heard of contingency fees or conditional fees where a lawyer may charge a, uh, a client a fee based upon the outcome of the representation. So it could be a percentage or a fraction, or it could be a staged fee structure where they, you pay a little bit up front and if you win, you pay a success fee um, or something like that. So people are familiar with that from the lawyer perspective. Um, I think the best way to explain third-party funding, at least class, what we call classic or traditional third-party funding, is it's, it's structured kind of like an attorney contingency fee except that it's not an attorney providing the money, it's some independent company. Um, I've even um, seen a few scenarios in which a uh, wealthy individual is the third party funder. Um, but generally traditional funding is, is with investment type companies, um, hedge funds and other types of firms that take investor funds and um, think of litigation as a class of asset as opposed to just a dispute as the litigants might think of it. Um, and so in that way, you could think of an, a funder as similar to an insurance company. This is sort of one of the perennial debates that you have in the scholarly literature, as well as in the industry itself, is, is how, how similar are the two. Um, funders would probably tell you they're very different, which they are, but there are some similarities. Um, one is that the insurance company will have a policy and that policy has a value to it, um, meaning the maximum amount of money that the insurance company would pay out in the event of a liability claim. Um, similarly, most third-party funding agreements have a cap on the amount of money that the funder will invest in the litigation or arbitration matter. And so um, in that way, the funder and the insurance company is sort of limiting their exposure to risk in the transaction with these caps, right? Um, both funders and insurance companies pay legal expenses for their clients. Um, so in the, the, a simple example is car insurance. If you get into an accident and the other side claims it's your fault, your car insurance will pay for your lawyer. Um, and then they will also pay out if it turns out that you're judged liable. And of course there's some exclusions in the policy, but for the most part, that's what happens. Um, then they raise your rate, but, but that's how it works. Right. Um, and so, uh, so in that way, um, the insurer is paying legal expenses, just like the third party funder is the insurer. In this case, insurer is hiring the lawyer for the insured. The third party funder doesn't do that necessarily. Um, but the insured would often work with the lawyer that is chosen by the client. And the, sometimes the third party funder may even recommend a specific lawyer to the client. Um, one key difference though is on the liability side. So the insurance company, the very nature of the policy is that it's to pay for liability. That is not what funders do. So funders only pay legal expenses. So they pay for the cost of resolution, the cost of resolving the dispute, but they will not pay any underlying liability. An insurer might pay both the cost to resolve the dispute and any underlying uh, liability that is decided in the case. As a result, insurance companies are often considered to be the real party in interest in some cases, 
and sometimes they get joined as a party in the dispute. Right. Um, funders don't get joined as a party because they have no stake in the merits of the outcome beyond their financial interest in winning versus losing and they wouldn't be paying any liability. So, so they have a very arm's length, they're supposed to have a very arm's length relationship from the conduct of the proceedings, and they're not supposed to at all engage or interfere in the attorney-client relationship. Insurers, on the other hand, this is a big, can be viewed as a problem in the insurance industry. They often are sort of trying to tell the lawyer what to do. And so the lawyer has to serve two clients, the insurance company and the actual person who was in the car accident, for example. Um, and that's challenging, right? But you don't have that in third-party funding. The client's lawyer is the client's lawyer, and the funder is not the lawyer's client at all. So there's some major similarities and some major differences. I've just outlined a few, but that's the most often analogy that's used to discuss third-party funding is, is insurance. And then on the, on the one hand, on the other hand, contingency fees. So sort of funders sort of exist somewhere in the middle. And that actually... You made me think about something I hadn't real or I had taken for granted is that I I assumed that you know an insurer would um, almost always be on the defense side, um, while a third party funder would typically be on the uh, the plaintiff side. Is that typical, or do you see exceptions to that, or is it you know all over the place? Right. So um, I would say insurance companies can be on both sides. So taking a car accident, which is a great example. Law professors love to use car accidents as examples for like everything because they, they're great examples. So in an insurance context, right, both sides have car insurance. And so both insurance companies would be involved in resolving that dispute and one would be involved on the claim side, the other would be involved on the defense side. And then of course there could be, you know, cross claims and counter claims and all sorts of stuff depending on the complexity of the accident. On the third party funding side, the majority, and I would say even the vast majority of funding takes place on the claim side. There is defense side funding, it does exist, um, but it is not prevalent. The challenge is the monetization. So the insurance company, unlike the funder, the insurance company is being paid all along, right? The whole time that the person has insurance, they're paying a premium of some, of some type. Maybe it's monthly, maybe it's annually, but they're paying into the insurance company for the ability to have the insurance company cover them in the event of liability. Um, whereas for the funder, um, the whole sort of business model is, or the traditional business model, is that the client wouldn't pay anything up front the funder would foot the bill for the lawyers and the witnesses and the experts and whatever document production, whatever costs there are, the filing fees, et cetera, in hopes of winning. And if you win, then on the back end, the funder gets reimbursed as well as makes a profit. So in that way, it looks a lot more like a contingency fee. So because of that type of structure, the challenge in defense side funding is if you win and you're a defendant, you win not having to pay, which although it could be worth a lot to the defendant, it doesn't actually generate a pot of money the way the claimant generates a pot of money when they win. And so that's the challenge for defense side funding is how does the funder make money? So there have been a few funders that have successfully been able to structure transactions um, in a way that they're able to make money. An example might be in an industry in which the client is frequently sued. Um, often the client has 
uncertainty in the litigation line item in their corporate budget. So some years the litigation is really expensive, other years it's less expensive. And so when you're trying to plan from a business perspective, um, it's not helpful that you have this unexpectedly either, you know, it's high expense. I mean, everyone would love for it to be low, but when it's unexpectedly high, that can create strain on the business. So some businesses have engaged third-party funders with this idea that I'm going to pay you third-party funder a flat fee. It's going to be a high fee. It's going to be a lot of money, but at least it's flat fee, a flat rate. So that means every year I know how much litigation is going to cost me because I'm paying you funder and you funder take on the risk of all that fluctuation. So some years it's more expensive, some years it's cheaper. And that's something that some large companies that have a lot of litigation, so insurance companies get sued a lot, so, that, so they sometimes use this. Um, companies that are involved in industries in which um, they get sued a lot, so um, for example, mining companies, they do blasting and all sorts of things that um, can lead to claims. Um, fossil fuel extractors, other types, similar types of companies might use this frequently. Um, but that's one example of a, of a situation of sort of defense side funding. But again, the st structure of defense side funding, it looks very different from claim side funding um, because the, the biggest challenge is the monetization. I'll give one more example of sort of an innovative structure in some intellectual property disputes involving a patent. Sometimes you might have a small startup that doesn't have any money, but they have a very valuable patent. And there might be some other company out there in the world that's infringing on their patent. So the company might say, hey, I need to sue this other company for infringing on my patent, but I don't have any money. So I go to the funder and I say, if you pay for my patent infringement lawsuit, I will give you some equity in my company. So if you win the lawsuit, all of a sudden the patent becomes more valuable and therefore the company becomes more valuable. And so the few funders that I've talked to that have done this type of transaction say they make way more money on that type of transaction than they do on a traditional litigation or arbitration matter because the patent could be exponentially valuable. So that's another example, um, but that, that's claim side, but you could do it on defense, patent defense as well. Um, Interesting. So. And that's, that's kind of a, a unique example and it's not something I, I would have often or ever thought of really. Um, mm -hmm. So I know that third party funding can be used internationally and domestically in litigation and in arbitration, um, but it seems to have really taken off, particularly in international commercial arbitration. What about international arbitration uh, is so conducive to third party funding? Sure. There are a couple of things about international arbitration. Um, that make it in some ways more attractive than litigation. Uh, number one, the awards are bigger. Um, so because of the nature of international commercial arbitration, and I would also add in something called investor state arbitration, which is a form of international arbitration in which you have a corporation from one country suing the government of another country for infringing on an investment in that other country. So this is a sort of foreign direct investment. That's what this is. So there's a whole system of treaties, a network of treaties around the world, over 3,500 what are called uh, bilateral or multilateral investment treaties that have arbitration in them. And it allows for the, that company to sue the government. 
The reason why I raise that is because uh, while third-party funding is prevalent in both international commercial and investment treaty arbitration, international commercial arbitration is confidential, private and confidential, whereas investment treaty arbitration is less so, less private, less confidential, and often the awards are published. So when the arbitral tribunal in an investment treaty arbitration makes a decision about a case and rules on a third-party funding issue, that causes you know, shockwaves through international arbitration because we don't normally get to see these decisions because the commercial arbitration decisions are private and confidential. So they, the investment treaty arbitration decisions are actually having a bigger influence on the practice and also on the rulemaking because they are public, which I think is very interesting. Uh, also, the investment treaty arbitration awards are mega awards, hundreds of millions of dollars, sometimes over a billion dollars um, have been awarded to these companies against these states, these governments. So, so number one is size of awards. The second would be enforceability. There's a network of conventions and treaties whereby 150, 160 plus countries have agreed to enforce international arbitration awards made in any one of the other countries that are parties to this convention. And so because of that, you can take your arbitration award and go and find the assets of the loser in whatever country they may be in and enforce it. So it's easier to collect than it might be in an international space than it might be to collect on a court judgment. So that's the second reason. Um, the third reason I would say is um, privacy and confidentiality, I think is important. Funders have a lot of proprietary formulas and proprietary structures for their transactions. And so this is one of the issues in terms of regulation in the international arbitration space. The arbitrators don't typically ask for copies of the funding agreement. Um, in the litigation space, there have been courts that have said, we need a copy of this funding agreement. Um, sometimes they'll do it under seal, but often it'll become part of the record, in which case it becomes public. And that can be problematic for the funders who are trying to compete with other funders. And so they want their business model um, and their funding formula to be kept as a trade secret. Right. So arbitration helps them a little more than, than litigation to do that. So those would be three reasons that I think they prefer, not necessarily prefer, but they like arbitration, international arbitration a lot. Interesting. Those, those all make sense. I, so I can certainly see why um, third-party funders would gravitate towards international arbitration, um, but third-party funding in general isn't without some issues, um, which I believe is getting into the topic of your presentation uh, coming up the Arbitration Institute um, in March. Um, your presentation is on March 10th at 2 p.m., and it's on third-party funding. What do arbitrators need to know? And I think that addresses some of the, the issues uh, specific to arbitration and third-party funding. Um, is that a good kind of general description? Absolutely. Um, arbitrators have some unique challenges with respect to third-party funding that, say, judges sitting in a courtroom don't have. One of those is that many arbitrators also act as advocates. They also act as counsel in other cases. So that raises the potential for conflicts of interest even more so than you would have as a judge. 
because as a judge, you only sit and hear the case. You don't actually represent any clients. Um, so that's one big issue. Um, another big issue, of course, is funder control of the proceedings. And because arbitration is private and confidential, arbitrators may not be able to see as well what the funder is doing in the background. And so I'll talk about some tools that the arbitrator can use to get information if they need it um, with respect to how the funder is involved in the case. I know your talk is um, specific to arbitration, but um, have federal courts in the United States uh, attempted or done anything to kind of address some of these issues? Um, yes, there have been a few federal courts that have addressed this issue. There have also been several state legislatures. In fact, I can now safely say that it's probably the majority of states have addressed this either through legislation or through Supreme Court decisions in that state. Um, and so federal courts have addressed this a little bit. The challenge, of course, is it's, it's been at the district court level, not as often at the circuit court level. There have been a few and of course, the Supreme Court won't touch this with a 10-foot pole, so they're not going to address it. Um, and so, there isn't a clear, um, there isn't a clear sense of what direction the courts will go in eventually, um, at least at the federal level. And of course, states is state by state. Um, one last thing I'll mention is that the Congress, federal Congress, has actually shown an interest in third-party funding. They've had a couple of hearings in which they've had people come and talk about third party funding. So there's some um, members of Congress that are particularly interested in it. I don't think that Congress uh, will address it anytime soon, but I do think it's on their radar screen at least. So you mentioned um, some state court legislation. Um, what have the legislatures um, done to address some of the issues you raised earlier? Mm -hmm. So, a variety of different things. Uh, one provision I've seen quite often is a cap on the amount of money or percentage or fraction of the recovery that the funder can take, very similar to the caps on attorney contingency fees. Um, I've also seen um, various state statutes that have had strict provisions regarding what information needs to be in the agreement for the funding agreement between the client and the funder. Um, some states have required funders to become licensed as funders in that state in order to operate. Most states have not required that, but a few states have. Um, another issue that a few states have, have addressed <coughs> is an evidentiary issue. So, so everyone's heard of the attorney-client privilege. And um, one of the issues is in order for a funder to decide whether to fund a case and um, also during the course of the case, when they want to get updates, they might be receiving client information that is confidential and might be protected by attorney-client privilege or the attorney work product doctrine. The challenge is the third-party funder is not a party to the case, so the third-party fund, funder excuse me, is technically a third party, which means that there could be a waiver of the attorney-client privilege or a waiver of the attorney work product doctrine for sharing information with the funder. Oh. And so a few states have fixed this in their funding legislation. They've just said the attorney-client privilege or the attorney work product privilege 
um, work product protection is extended to communications between client and funder. But that's only like maybe a handful of states. So this is a big issue for parties who engage with funders in other states, they may not have that protection. So you might send a document or share information with your funder that then the opposing side goes and tries to subpoena the funder to get that information. And it's even more so a problem for clients who are seeking funding. So if you're seeking funding, you might talk to three or four different funding companies before you settle upon one. Well, the other funding companies, you've given them their, your information, even though you didn't hire them to be your funder, they can be subpoenaed and this has actually come up in a few uh, cases in, in uh, federal court in particular. Um, so some states have tried to fix this with legislation. I think more needs to be done though, because that's a, that's a really big issue. And that's something I can see is a big pitfall for um, attorneys and parties that aren't um, wary and aren't used to using third-party funders. So I guess moving on more directly to the topic of your uh, presentation, um, are these are there any issues that are unique to arbitration? Sure. So I would say the, the conflicts of interest issue is um, more sharp in arbitration than it is in other areas um, for a couple of reasons. One being the, uh, we call it the double hat problem in arbitration, which is where in one case, the arbitrator wears the arbitrator hat and in another case, they wear the advocate hat and both cases could be funded by the same funder, for example. Right. Um, and so that's one problem. The second problem is the repeat appointments problem. So if you are an arbitrator in a particular industry, let's say you're an arbitrator of construction disputes and um, you keep being appointed by the party, the funded party in a multitude of cases um, and it just so happens that in those cases, you may rule in favor of the funded party. There's a question of, is that, is that a coincidence? Is that just because that funded party um, better convince you as an arbitrator? Or is that something where you're getting these repeat appointments because that party thinks you're going to um, rule for them and the funder might be pushing them because funders sometimes try to have input on who the parties um, nominate as their arbitrator. And so the funder might be saying, well, make sure you get arbitrator X again, because they really understand our company's point of view. So we push for arbitrator X and then arbitrator X gets appointed in five different cases funded by the same funder with the same, either same or similar parties involved. And it raises a huge question as to that arbitrator's integrity, um, even just the appearance, right, of that. So that's another example that's kind of unique to arbitration because you don't appoint judges. So and how are how have arbitrators kind of addressed these issues? Um, what are some of the solutions that they've come up with? Right. So arbitrators tend to be overly cautious, I would say, which I think is the way to go here. Um, they tend to over disclose. So um, they tend to say, OK, you know, these are the funders I've been involved with as advocate, as um, as arbitrator. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, and they might say, you know, these are the um, cases in which I have sought funding or previously represented a party that was funded or something like that. Um, so that's one way. Uh, another way is to be proactive about asking. So remember that, remember that arbitration is both private and confidential. So, and there's no, at least not in commercial arbitration, there is no mandatory disclosure rule yet. Um, 
we might be seeing a mandatory disclosure rule in investment arbitration. But in commercial arbitration, we don't have a mandatory disclosure rule for third-party funding. So the arbitrator may not even know there's a funder involved. Now, of course, the very next question that I usually get is, well, if they don't know, how can they be biased? And the answer to that is, it's not really about whether they're actually biased. It's about the appearance of bias. Because what will happen down the line is whichever party loses the case, and usually in this situation would be the uh, non-funded party losing the case, if they find out there was a funder that was undisclosed, they then go and challenge the arbitral award in court on the basis that the arbitrator was influenced by the funder and it was, and that it was nefarious because it was kept secret, even if it may not have been nefarious. And so that, that's another reason for the disclosure. Um, so then you, you sort of take away that potential argument to attacking the arbitral award. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so I know I don't want to give away all the secrets from your presentation. So, um, but, but maybe, um, I don't know if this is getting too much into your, the topic of your talk, but have uh, parties or even the arbitral institutions um, have done anything to address uh, these kind of issues? Yes and yes. So parties can write um, in their arbitration agreements, they can put provisions about funding. The challenge, I think, from the party perspective is when you're writing your agreement, particularly when you're writing your arbitration agreement, in a, and I'm assuming this is a business transaction, which it usually is, um, at that point, everything's going well. You may not even have any inkling what possible disputes could arise in the future. And even more importantly, you don't know which side you're going to be on. So um, if you're a claimant, you might have different views about third-party funding than if you are a respondent. So because of that uncertainty, most of the time, I don't, I don't think parties address it very often, but sometimes they do um, in the contract. So they can do that. Um, the challenge will be what, what is the applicable law? And does the applicable law supersede whatever is written in the contract? And that would just depend on the jurisdiction. With respect to the arbitral institutions, there have been a few arbitral institutions that have issued rules, issued guidelines, issued sort of guidance, as the sort of falling short of guidelines. Um, and there have actually been a few um, jurisdictions around the world that have passed legislation and then as a result of that legislation implemented um, a sort of code of conduct or uh, for third party funding as well as disclosure requirements. Um, those are still taking shape, but we will see more of that I think as time goes on, particularly in other parts of the world. The institutions for a long time said we, won't, we don't wanna touch this. It's for the parties to decide and now more recently they're feeling I think bolder. And so I think institutions are more likely to address it at least the at least the ones involved in investment arbitration they're definitely going to address it the commercial arbitration ones i think they're still sort of on the fence and so they just issue like guidance right, without issuing rules so they're like here's some guidance um so they keep it kind of soft law as opposed to strict rules right so i, I try and as much as i can leave listeners with kind of a, a broader takeaway um so if you, if you had to give one piece of advice um, to an arbitrator, that's, uh, what, what would you tell him or her? Sure, I would say to arbitrators to educate yourself. 
um, 10 years ago, or at this point, actually 12 years ago, when I first started researching this field, and it was not very big in the United States, um, people just didn't even know what it was. They didn't even know that it existed. I think now in 2020, we are far past that. Most people have heard of it. They at least know, hey, there's this thing called litigation funding or third-party funding. I think it's important for all attorneys, as well as arbitrators, to educate themselves about what it is, what it looks like, and um, what are the issues, particularly the ethics issues involved in um, third-party funding in, in litigation and arbitration so that they can be vigilant about it. Um, so I think that's the most important thing. And then the, I guess the second most important thing I would say that is, is, is be proactive. Don't wait until there's a problem right. because by then it might be too late for your arbitral award. Be proactive about dealing with any actual issues or, or potential issues. So those are some great uh, tips. And I think if anyone's interested in learning more about third-party funding in general or um, issues that may arise uh, for arbitrators and third-party funding and how to deal with those issues, um, I think they should certainly um, attend your presentation at the Arbitration Institute. Um, and for those who are looking or expecting to attend, um, I believe your the institute itself is uh, March 9th and 10th at the Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law in Phoenix, Arizona. And I believe your session uh, starts at 2 p.m. on March 10th. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. So, Professor Sahani, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. Um, I'm sure most of our listeners are now looking forward to hearing you talk more about third-party funding. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure. And I look forward to continuing the discussion in March. Thank you again, Professor Zahani. And to our listeners, uh, thank you for tuning in. And we hope to see you at the Arbitration Institute.